Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party, this one featuring Laura Round from the Liberal Conservative think tank Bright Blue. She's formerly of the Remain campaign as well. We talk about both in detail and there's some great stories from the Remain campaign, a, a great insight into the style and the tone of that um, referendum campaign. As I say towards the start of this uh, interview, I met Laura on the night of the referendum at the at the results party at what we thought was going to be um, the night that Britain voted to stay in the EU and obviously that did not go that way so we reflect slightly on that but broadly on the campaign, her experience of running the comms for it, we talk about Bright Blue about the principle of being a Liberal Tory, about the tone of modern politics about um, the Tory Glastonbury there's so much in this and with uh, it's becoming a cliche so I need to find a better form of words for other than just saying this every week but the hour flew by and it just... I felt like we could have easily done another hour. Now, I don't know whether... Because people do say, oh, I could have easily listened to two hours of it. Do let me know. Do email me, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, whether these should be even longer or whether actually an hour is enough or around an hour is enough. And maybe once it got to an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes, you, you, you might not think. Maybe I'm just leaving you wanting more and that's the right thing. Um... Laura's a massive talent, and it's it's easy to see why she's a rising star in, in conservative circles. Only 28 and has already got so much political experience, enjoys exploring ideas and invigorating the Conservative Party. Absolutely brilliant to, to listen to in terms of where she thinks the direction of the Tory party should be. Also, a, a very pragmatic approach towards Brexit as well. So there's so much in here that, that that's great and that... As, as I've already said, the time absolutely flew by, so I'm sure we'll get Laura back on again at some point in the future. I think she's going to be around for a very, very long time. Um, you can follow her on Twitter, at Laura Round. You can follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford, and you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. There is a new section in the show. I realised, simply just asking you where you listen, and it's lovely to hear where you listen, so please do keep emailing me those, actually was quite a... Quite a tedious question to ask you all. Um, so instead, there is a new interactive part of the show um, towards the end. So look out for that and um, and do join in with it. Also, as I keep telling you, I'm out on tour. The tour starts very, very soon indeed and goes to a number of places. It starts in Glasgow on Sunday the 25th of March at the Glasgow Stand, then goes to Edinburgh on Tuesday the 27th of March at the Edinburgh Stand, then I'm at the Bristol Redgrave Theatre on the 29th of March and then at London Soho Theatre from the 3rd to the 7th of April. There are other dates as well, but I won't read them all out. But if you live anywhere near those cities, do come and see me. You can get tickets through the website, mattford.com slash live. It's bang up to date. I'm delighted to announce as well, I've got a couple of support acts, the Foreign Secretary and the President of the United States 
uh, will be joining me on the road for, for all those gigs. Uh, so do come along. I know a lot of people would like to support the podcast in some way, so that's some way you can do it. Another way you can do it is by subscribing, by sharing these online, spreading the word, and by leaving an iTunes review. Um, I'm not going to beg, but you don't have to pay for this podcast. It's, you've probably got your phone in your hand right now. You could just do it. It will take you longer to say no. Anyway, enjoy this thrilling hour or so um, with Laura around. From Bright Blue, uh, we're joined, I'm joined by Laura Round. Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, We met, wow, a couple of years ago on referendum night. A year and a half ago. A year and a half ago. God, Mm -hmm. it feels like longer ago. At a party for the Remain (laughs) campaign at the Royal Festival Hall. It was meant to be a party. It was meant to be. a bit of a wake. The victory party for the Remain campaign on the night of June the 23rd. And when I turned up, um, Farage had just conceded defeat. I think Boris mm-hmm. had, and it was a mere formality. Gibraltar just come through at like 96% remain. Yeah. There were canapes the out. Was good. Lovely pastel <laughs> colours. It was very reminiscent of a new Labour event. Chucker Amuna was there. It felt like the good <laughs> old days. Campbell. Alistair Campbell was there. Nicky Morgan. <laughs> yeah. And then as the night wore on, there's two North East results Sunderland and Newcastle. Yeah. That was when. Mm. the tone turned and it was a party that never really got going um, yeah I god that was a hard night to go through it was I mean my perspective is slightly different I think because I was working yeah I think the moment of the switch came a bit later because you were so <laughs> focused on just getting stuff done and making sure the journalists were where they had to be and you know, Kate Burley was there, so we had to be on Kate Burley watch and all this stuff. Yeah. So I think it wasn't until a bit later, you know, one by one, you could see people, <laughs> yeah, clocking on to what was happening. And then people started leaving. Yeah. There was just this empty room with a few nibbles left and a couple of bottles of beer. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a party that where the corks never popped. Yeah. So my my job <laughs> turned into, <laughs> uh, so I was yeah. So I remember. Um, Senior staff said, okay, Laura, you got to make sure that nobody cries on oh, TV. God. How do you do <laughs> that? Okay. Um, I don't know. I don't I don't didn't know on the night and I still haven't really figured out how to do that. I think when it looked like someone was going to cry, I would just make sure I was standing in between the camera and that person. It was actually really good for me because you know, I was so busy focusing on making sure nobody else was crying, I definitely didn't get emotional. <laughs> so who looked like they were going to cry? Just oh, oh, like you know, um, well, lots of people, but especially I think, um, you know, uh, volunteers who just been spending so much time leafleting and door knocking and yeah. Um, I mean, we'd been awake for hours at that point. Like you know, we got up super early, worked really late the night before, so people were absolutely shattered. And you worked on the Remain campaign. At that point, when the polls closed at 10 o'clock on June the 23rd, how certain were you that you'd won? OK, so I was I was quite confident. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone was. But, well, yeah, so, I mean, obviously, in hindsight, there were definitely moments during the campaign where it just, it did look a bit more tricky. But I guess, you know, I had the benefit of not being in the 
the, the, the rooms or the discussions where, you know, the crunch data was being discussed. So I think a lot of, uh, you know, you can't have, tell your staff, oh, we might lose this. You have to keep them motivated. And, yeah. you know. Although, actually, Alistair Campbell is actually really funny in hindsight. Uh, no, it was funny at the time and it wasn't funny in hindsight because he was right on the money. So Tony Blair came in one morning and obviously that was huge because, yeah. you know, Remain campaign, lots of former Labour staff, uh, people worked in the campaign and Lib Dems and, I mean, he was obviously God. So he came in, that was really exciting. He said, you're going to win this, you've done an amazing job. And that same after, that same day, the afternoon, Alistair Campbell came in and then he also addressed us and he was so blunt. He was like, guys, you might not win this. It's really tight. You've got to give it everything you got. I'm not confident. And it was just completely silent. And we're like, wow. And I, oh yeah, he said, you know, I hear Tony Blair was here this morning, but, um, you know, he, he's a great front front man, but um, <laughs> this is what this is what it's actually like. And we were like, oh, my God. I think that was a day or two days before. And did you get a sense that there was polling coming in or research being done that was showing that the result wasn't going your way as the yeah. campaign so our, our polling guy um, would, um, he was a fierce smoker and uh, I think that that got more intense <laughs> time. And I, I'm not a smoker, but some of my colleagues who would also go out for a figgy would have a short chat with him and he'd be like, <laughs> puffing like crazy. And uh, he's like, oh, and he'd be quite honest about it. Like it's not, it's not as good as God. I think. But still on the night, I think we're really positive. But bear in mind, our team were based, you know, we were based in London. Everyone in London was wearing a sticker saying Stronger In. Yeah. So it felt really good. <laughs> you know, men, oh, and then the, the rain started pouring and people couldn't get home. And we were sitting, we were having dinner and next to people saying, oh, yeah, we can't, we can't go home. We're not going to be able to vote. And like, what were you going to vote? Remain? I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so all this stuff started, yeah adding on to each other. So during that campaign, were there moments or there fence posts in that campaign where you think, actually, had things gone differently? Were there events that turned the tide? Um, I think the one that's... Well, I think fundamentally um, that... I mean, really, it dates back to so much longer. I mean, making a positive case for Europe in previous years would have helped yes. <laughs> and it would have made yeah, yeah. all the figureheads um, far more believable because if you have six months to all of a sudden say guys actually there are some really big benefits to being in the European Union such as XYZ um, yeah I can imagine people thinking well you know this classic you're just a politician you're saying you want yeah. to keep your job or whatever um, so I think that's fundamental and then throughout the campaign, um, I think the, the big the big one is um, the the emergency budget, which obviously a lot of people were very critical of. Um, and I think you know just hammering home that that blunt message maybe was a bit wasn't wasn't ideal, but you know they, they must have had a reason to do it. They're focusing on the economy rather than immigration. Um, but, I mean, we tried to get politicians to who were going on, on media to... We ha, we did have an immigration line. It came quite late, but we did have it. But I think it was only used once. And I can't remember who it was. Probably either Yvette or Chucker. And um, it was the only time it was used. So, you know, 
that probably was something we should have focused on a bit more because it was clearly such a such a fundamental issue to voters. Communications are your big area of expertise. And as you say, that you were trying to, in six months, overturn years of Eurosceptic propaganda from politicians and the media and just a generally accepted, rarely challenged view that the EU was broadly a negative thing. Do you think the campaign itself could have been more pro-European, more heart and soul about our allies and a sense of a European identity, or would that have not helped? Um, yeah, I suppose to a certain extent, yes. I'm just trying to, you know, remember. I mean... Most of the stuff you just try and forget. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's not very happy memories. Oh, but you must have enjoyed um, the camaraderie of it, the campaign spirit, or was it? Yeah, no. <laughs> well, I came relatively late to the campaign, and um, it, 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 I mean, it was fascinating. I mean, it was, I've learned so much in working with some of the best people operating in Westminster. Um, you know, James McGrory. Uh, he was the campaign spokesman. Oh, my God. When he was pitching stories to journalists, we would all just stop working and sit back and just enjoy because yeah. <laughs> he's so good. Um, and, um, you know, then number 10 joined and just seeing how they operate was obviously really, really interesting. So, no, it was really good. But you, <laughs> you've got to bear in mind, I was the only conservative on the press team. <laughs> so that was interesting. And I think after a while they did come round to the idea that I was human and had the sense of human actually quite nice and probably quite similar values. But it, <laughs> I don't, I remember when I joined, I thought, oh, I think they're a bit uncomfortable with this. And in my interview, I got asked, you know, do you mind the prospect of working with Labour and Lib Dems? And I was like, no, really don't. You know, this is a. It's not what I came into politics. I'm not. I'm could not be less tribal but afterwards I remember thinking I should have asked them you know? <laughs> are you sure you want to work with a conservative but um no so that but yeah that was uh they came around so would they would they treat you slightly differently at the start was there a bit of suspicion I, perhaps I don't know I mean we were all working so hard there wasn't really that much time to you know it was it was it was a really fun atmosphere and, and we still see each other quite quite often um but I, I remember. I think it was the uh, the week before Number Ten were about to move in, and they all started making jokes about conservatives. I can't remember what they said. And I'm like, oh god, you know, Number Ten are moving in, Tories, la la la. And I, I, I confronted them, and I was like, is this what you said about me before I joined? And they're a bit quiet. They were like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh okay. Um, yeah. I suppose that would have been on both sides. There'd been people from Number Ten going, "Oh God, I've got to go over there and work with all these weird lefties." Maybe, although I think at the top it went. It was a really good working relationship, and um, I mean, you know, behind closed doors, maybe it was different. But that is the strong sense I got. Um, I mean, it was obviously different at leadership level. Obviously, it wasn't like Corbyn's team was coming in and mm. doing anything, frankly. <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, with with Will Straw, who's incredibly professional, um, I think that was a good working relationship. And I think people were pleasantly surprised with Craig Oliver because obviously he had quite a, a reputation, such a big beast. Um, but when he came after a couple of weeks, you know, people just spoke of him with so much respect. And turn out, you know, again, a conservative with a sense of humour. And um, he was quite funny and likeable. And, yeah, so I think that um, that was really good. But I remember, I think people were a bit taken aback by that. Was there ever any tension with 
Cameron with the number 10 people from... Obviously, people working on the Remain campaign want to stay in the EU. Most of them didn't want a referendum at all. Mm. Would that ever sort of show its face? Would people ever say, it would be a lot easier, David, if you hadn't yeah. called the fucking... <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm sure it did. But never that you witnessed? No, I don't think I witnessed that. Maybe just in the pub, but not like... I haven't witnessed it face to face. No. No. So since, where do you stand on this then, on a second referendum or a referendum on the deal? You're a pro-European person. Do you think we just have to accept the result now and move on? Um, yeah, I do, actually. And I think, um, I mean, what's interesting about looking at... I mean, this campaign was so unique in the sense that it obviously brought people from the Green Party, the Liberal Democrats, Conservatives and Labour all together, um, having come from very different political viewpoints. After the campaign um people slowly obviously went back <laughs> to their political camps as it were and i think that has been difficult for some people because i think lots of people in the remain campaign still you know are still maybe think they're fighting that fight but quite a few including myself aren't um and, uh, yeah, I think, you know, when we get together, we try just not to talk about it. But, um, <laughs> Very British. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, no, I'm I'm a bit more relaxed about it. I mean, I talking about political camps and where I came from, I didn't join the campaign, although I'm half Dutch, so, you know, I'm, I've got that sort of unique perspective to it. But I didn't join the campaign and voted Remain out of love of the institution. Mm. It was very much, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of things that I don't like about the, the EU um, you know it's grown too much politically I you know really really um, think the economic aspect of it is what's so great about it so you know you make a cost-benefit analysis and I ended up backing backing remain um, but you know there are some people who worked on the campaign who just absolutely love the European project and believe we're all European and should strengthen the, the project a bit like Eva Hofstadt is saying yeah but um yes yeah, so, you know I'm I am a little bit more relaxed about it obviously I am I am worried as I think like any sane voter would be because it is a massive challenge it's the biggest thing this country's faced you've got to get it right um but yeah I am I'm I'm not someone who's banging on for a second referendum so you've, you've moved on it, it, yeah. it, if one were to be called or at some point in the future, oh a, a winning party says we're going to have a referendum to rejoin the EU in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Would you rejoin the cause? It's going to be such a political answer, and I'm, you know, but <laughs> really, depend on, really depend on what, what's on the ballot. I think, um, I think in many respects, the, the, the Brexit has shown that, there, you know, the opportunities that Brexit offers... Um, and also, since you know, there's so mi- so much going on in Europe um, that's looking quite troublesome. If that continues in the next ten years, um, I I can't guarantee I'd vote so. I, I obviously I just don't know. How difficult is it being a, a liberal conservative who's instinctively pro-European, even if it's a, a sort of very cool-headed, pragmatic form of pro-Europeanism, being in the party now, which feels like it is pandering to people like the European Research Group and Jacob Rees-Mogg and a particular type mm. of Tories in which perhaps you don't share. Do you feel comfortable with Theresa May's current direction? I think the last couple of weeks have been um, quite comforting, actually. I mean, 
arguably it was a bit um, could have been done sooner, <laughs> um, but better late than never. Um, and um, no, I think that has been quite positive. And I think you look at the reactions within the Parliamentary Conservative Party, the fact that you have Jacob Rees-Mogg welcoming it and Anna Soubry at the same time, you know you're on to something. Obviously, there's still a long way to go. Um, but no, I think I'm 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 more uh, I'm more assured uh, about it now. But also, I just uh, the media keeps focusing on for obvious reasons, I guess, about the ECR and and those MPs, and it sounds like that's what the Conservative Party is. It is not, you know, it's such a broad church, and it might be that Anna Soubry is the most vocal and Nicky Morgan and Dominic Grieve who tabled the amendment. But if you look at the parliamentary party, I think a large chunk are really quite liberal conservative. And that gives me hope. We well, talk about being a liberal conservative. You work for a think tank called Bright Blue, which is the home of liber- liberal uh, conservatism. Uh, re- relatively recently set up, you left after the Remain campaign and went to work for Bright Blue. What is the aim of Bright Blue? The aim is to make everyone in the world a liberal conservative. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the the aim, um, well, to assert like the, the grand scheme is to put liberal conservatism um, as a philosophy um, and give it, you know, make sure that people see, you know, know about it as a philosophy and identify with it. So, you know, if you'd ask my director, he, I think his big vision is that one day. You, you know, in 10 years, 20 years' time, you, you're in front of a class of kids and you say, you know, what, what are you politically? And people say, I'm a liberal conservative. And I think it is growing. You know, you look on Facebook, for example, you can say what you are, you know, what your political affiliation is. And I have noticed quite a lot of people say liberal conservative. I'm not on Facebook anymore, so I wouldn't... Oh, my God! I wouldn't know about that. Is that a bad thing? I think so. Isn't it like when you... Um, it's like the new, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, phone book. Well, like ex-directory. Yeah. <laughs> I've gone off grid, like a survivor list. I'm on yeah. Twitter, I'm on other social media. I just... There you go. I, 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 Facebook did my head in in the end. So you're famous enough that it won't cause a problem. I'm not, well, that wasn't that wasn't my, <laughs> that wasn't any part of any calculation, but it was <laughs> it was more that I was wasting so much time on it. Mm. It was, I think it's there is a voyeurism to it, isn't there? That's quite unhealthy. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've got to be honest. I don't get on it very much, but I've, I've replaced that with <laughs> the dark hole of Instagram, which you can also just get lost and lost and lost. So I haven't gone on Instagram because that is basically just selfies, isn't it? Well, it depends who you follow, or it's like food, and and dogs. Yeah. And and yeah. He's not really selling it. No, and, I'm not. I'm not trying to sell it. I, I yeah. I think in the old days, Facebook used to be um, where people used to mainly upload photos, but that's been taken over by Instagram. So, so. is there a bright blue Instagram account? There is, yeah. Yeah, is relatively that, recent. Is that all food and dogs? No, no, that's the covers of our reports and um, photos of the speakers at our events. Uh, and adverts for... Super it, snazzy. I've followed you on Twitter, the um, drink tank events. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> so these are these are what uh, informal yeah. meetings with MPs. That's kind of how Bright Blue beers. started. Um, In the pub, because originally it was a it was a voluntary organisation, and um, 
um, yeah, we would organise drink tanks in Westminster and get an MP to speak and... Get them drunk. Get, well, um, you know, people can get a drink if they like to. And, um, yeah, so that's how it started. And um, it was only it was only four and a half years ago that Bright Blue became professional. It's quite a crowded marketplace, isn't it? Particularly on the right now. Um Although some think tanks don't survive, but you've got the Centre for Social Justice, you've got Policy Exchange, and lots of others. Where does Bright Blue fit into that landscape? What what makes you distinct from other centre right think tanks? Mm. So, well, we have um, the clear br- uh, branding of liberal conservatism. That is literally what it's all about. I guess um, there is some overlap with Policy Exchange, which were set up by Tory modernisers um, back in the day. Um, social Centre for Social Justice, obviously, um, we share the belief in social justice, although some of the issues we would approach differently to Ian Duncan Smith's um, outfit. But <clears throat> what what um, makes us very different, um, I guess, or very different, it makes us different is that we are not a charity. So we are openly a centre-right think tank. Yeah. And um, the aims are to make, to introduce progressive and liberal policies. Not just, I mean, primarily the audi- our audience is the Conservative Party, but not, you know, not solely. We will also comment on, on the Labour manifesto and, and their, what they're putting out. But the idea is to modernise the Conservative Party and to make it more progressive. What's it like working for a think tank? It's really fun, actually. It's really fun. And what's the day-to-day involve? I mean, some listeners might have different <laughs> different definitions of fun, yeah. but um, no, I really enjoy it. So, but I'm quite in a in a unique position because I am surrounded by you know most people who work at think tanks are researchers, um, and these guys are absolutely brilliant. We they have huge brains, um, they know their you know subject inside out. And they managed to produce these brilliant reports and come up with original policy ideas. My job is to learn from them, which is really fun, um, and um, to then make sure that people actually know what these guys are producing. So that's talking to political journalists or um, not just political journalists, but, well, many political journalists, but also Whitehall editors or environment editors, um, but also politicians, um, advisors, obviously the ministers, and then you hope that they actually get implemented. And how do you decide what areas to focus on? Um, so um, it started off, obviously I've only been there for a year and a half, but, but it started with a strong focus on social reform. So our first reports were around education and welfare, um, and that's largely because our director, Ryan Shorthouse, um, has um, deep knowledge and understanding in education because of his previous jobs. Um, and then we moved into immigration and integration. I guess what what brings together all our themes is that we try to um, champion... Um, areas that are traditionally seen as more comfortable with the centre-left, so out of the Conservative Party's comfort zone. Yeah. 
So whether that's welfare or immigration and integration or human rights, which we do a lot of work on, or the environment. Health? Uh, we actually don't do much in health, but, you know, we're still young. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so that's that's kind of where our value comes in the most. Um, but, you know, we are looking at other areas of work as well. I'm very keen for us to do more on creative industries and international development and areas like that. But this is where the battleground with Corbyn is, isn't it? This is where the heart and soul of this new era will perhaps be forged, is this idea that Corbyn understands that the world is unfair and, and outwardly demonstrates that he cares. The Tories are seen as, whether you want to call it the nasty party or, uh, you know, other monikers, but there's there's a perception, perhaps wrong, that Tories don't have empathy and they, they mm. don't understand the current world. The work you're doing mm. is, is to place the Tories absolutely in that exactly. in that space. Yeah, yeah no, that's... You should be your... <laughs> that was the advertisement for Bright <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble. But that's, that, that seems to me that's where, that's where you're aiming. Yeah. I mean, that, does that for you come from a place of genuine conviction? Is that it does, squarely where yeah, your politics are? It does. I mean, I, I was a member of Bright Blue before I um, um, applied to work there. Um, and it was actually a speech by Nick Bowles, MP, who is brilliant. I've got a political crush on him. Um, he um, he did a speech. He's on our advisory council as well, so he, he's you know he's very bright blue. But he did a speech, gosh, three years ago, I think. Um, and he basically made the case for if you're if you're a liberal, you should vote conservative. And that just completely. Um, struck a chord with me because I'm half Dutch and as I said earlier and I I grew up there and I was active in the Dutch political party VVD and they are a centre-right liberal party and they sit for example if you look to Brussels they are officially a sister party with the Liberal Democrats but in reality I mean there's two liberal parties in Holland I mean it's <laughs> it's an amazing country um, in reality they are closer to the Conservative Party you know certain wing of the Conservative Party than the Liberal Democrats. So that, I was like, absolutely, I completely, completely agree with that. So I was like, bright blue, cool, I'll sign up. And then through a friend I heard they were looking for um, someone to do their communications. So, so uh, Nick Bowles crystallised perhaps the thought you'd already had yourself and that, and that resonated. Prior to him, given that you're a, a Liberal Conservative, would Nick Clegg have been a, a political idol? Would Tony Blair have been? So, I mean, this is a really, you know, a bit easy because I, I obviously didn't experience Tony Blair firsthand, um, but I think he would have... Uh, I have, a, Yeah, I think there's a lot of areas that Liberal Conservatives would, would agree with. Um, Nick Clegg, I think, is a brilliant politician and such a nice man. Yeah. Um, Really, really like him. I remember him giving me a really hard time that I'm VVD and not D66. And I was really surprised. I thought he would be a bit more VVD. I was like, basically, VVD is, in a way, pretty much the coalition. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess, you know, he wanted policies that the Conservatives <laughs> wouldn't give him. So, but yeah, he gave me quite a hard time on that. But no, I've got I've got a lot of time for Nick Clegg. I don't, I, you know, on the EU issue, obviously, I don't agree with him. Lots of things I think he's... He's too left-wing for me. But very talented, 
a nice man, yeah. So in terms of other Tories then, what access do you get to cabinet ministers or to the prime minister? Um, well, it really depends um, on, you know, existing relationships. Um, it's not... Uh, well, it, yeah, it depends. So, like, sometimes I'll come to events with us or I'll give speeches. Um, it's it's mainly through advisers, I'd say. Um, and then the junior ministers tend to have a bit more time. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it just completely depends on whether you know them personally or whether they've worked with Bright Blue in the past. And obviously, if they are sympathetic to Bright Blue. Um, you know, some of the... We've, uh, we've got two... Currently, two cabinet ministers are on our advisory council. And is the prime minister open to your ideas? Do you think? I think so. She used to be. Um, she used to be on our advisory council. So you've um, got the re- there's a relationship there that you've got. Yeah. No. Um, you know, we've we've supported a number of her things, but we've also we have been quite critical um, last year and a half. Um, Does that cause tension? Will you sometimes get a call from number ten or from a? A friend on the inside who says, "Come on, leave off." Um, not really. I mean, I think it happened once, and <laughs> I'm trying to remember what it was. It was uh, so. This was the time of Nick Timothy. I think he got in touch and said, "Because um, we we were we we're opposed to grammar schools, and we think the net migration target needs to be scrapped." So <laughs> we were banging on about those two things. And uh, funnily enough, Nick Timothy gave us a hard time on the net migration <laughs> target, which I think. It's just, I don't know, I thought we'd pick another battle. Are you sometimes treated, you know, you look at the Labour Party, I suppose in a way you'd be progress if there was a, any sort of similarity with the, with the different movements in the Labour Party. Are you sometimes treated with the, with the, uh, the slight suspicion by some of the older heads, some of the more Eurosceptic individuals, some of the more Tory Tories? I don't think so. First, well, fun, fun anecdote. A former <laughs> minister introduced us to someone... And I, I had him, I went to have a cup of coffee with this guy, and um, he said, "Yeah, I, I'm told you're the Tory momentum." <laughs> I was like, "Whoa! <laughs> a, we're not a campaigning organisation, so that's definitely not true." Because uh, you got Tory Reform Group, who are very good. You know, they do the the, the campaigning side. I think we we are fundamentally a think tank. But we have a pressure group element. What I think makes people less suspicious about us, like they might not agree with us, but I don't think they're suspicious because we um, we try and integrate them as much as possible. So if we have a panel at party conference or throughout the year, we're not going to make it an echo chamber. We will we will have make sure it's an interesting discussion. So um, yeah, you get. I mean, it's fascinating. So and I interviewed Jacob Rees-Mogg for our last uh, magazine and we uh, we've got Patrick Minford in our next magazine which obviously most probably don't agree with so we try and we try and include different um streams of thought and i think that people respect that i hope anyway well different ideas uh, we're, we're a central theme, really, to the Big Ten Ideas Festival, which was mm. the, the Tory Glastonbury, which you uh, <laughs> you um, were involved in. You, uh, I was warned you do your research. There's a, there's a <laughs> session on YouTube of you uh, fielding there? questions. I didn't even know that! Oh, there is, there is. Um, <laughs> so you can you can just <laughs> type oh. Laura around into YouTube. Thanks, you, George find Freeman. Um, that's on there. You're fielding questions in a tent with bunting. I mean, it was... <laughs> There was obviously a bit of Mickey taken around the festival because it was sold as mm. a Tory Glastonbury. I mean, did, were people camping over with their bands? 
No, we, uh, <laughs> people stayed in hotels, I think. <laughs> of course, because it's Tory Glastonbury. <laughs> Tory Glastonbury. Um, yeah, nobody knew what to expect. I think to an extent even George Freeman himself didn't really know how it was going to work out. Um, I, I remember getting there, with, you know, arriving there with a bunch of journalists who were so pumped. They're like, this is going to be great. So easy. I already know what I'm going to say. Right. And when they left, they're like, oh, my God, A, I had a quite a good time. That was really interesting. And now I don't know what I'm going to have to write because it's not, it's, it can't be a piss take anymore. Um, so we had, we had um, three really big tents, sort of marquee but open style. I mean, it looked really cool. Yeah, it did. And, um, you know, there was one on the economy and one on society and one on politics. And um, they managed to get an amazing lineup of speakers. Um, and lots of people, you know, it was a mixture of members of parliament, um, some of them, you know, quite senior, well-known, uh, and not just speaking, you know, there to attend and to just get a sense of it all, um, all the way down to people, who, you know, who live outside of London and are politically engaged and saw this was on and they thought they'd try and get a ticket. Um, and it was really vibrant. Luckily, it was sunny. Oh, God, if it wasn't sunny and it was raining, it would have been awful. But it was really brilliant, actually. And it was, yeah, it was... Um, yeah, hats off to George for pulling that off. I think they're doing a, another one this year. Did it have to be intense? Intense. I mean... Not, <laughs> I've realised that's I've left myself wide open there, but <laughs> did it have to be outdoors in marquees? Um... Did, I don't. Does I that don't add know. something? I think it did actually add something. It it did add something because if you're active in politics, you go to you tend to go. I mean, if you're working full time anyway, you get to go to a lot of dues. You know, one panel event after the other, or a dinner, or a conference, and they are surprise, surprise, always indoors. Um, so the fact that it was outdoors made it a lot more informal immediately. Okay. People weren't there in their suits. So some people took it really seriously. They were in their wellies. And um, I think it just, it was a totally different atmosphere. And um, people were invited to come the night before and there was an opening speech and then there was a hog roast. Oh, great. Yeah, and beers and... And it was all right. Now this it's starting to sound good. Yeah, and there were like fairy lights everywhere, and then there was live music, a violin. <laughs> that was a bit weird, but um, yeah, that could have been a bit more like country music or something. But it was, um, yeah, it was. That was really nice. And then we went to our hotels instead of um, camped. The, yeah, we didn't camp. Um, and then the next day, luckily it was sunny. Um, yeah, it's a bit like the Henley Festival. Have you been there? I have been once. Yeah. Yep. It was definitely not like Henley Festival. Because <laughs> I performed at it, I think, last year or the year before. It's the only place I've seen vending machines with champagne in. Oh, my God. There was a Moet and Chandon oh vending God. machine with full bottles of Isn't champagne. It's not going to break when it comes and falls down. Everyone's in tuxedos. Yeah, so this awesome. festival where everyone's in tuxedos and <laughs> ball gowns. Um, <laughs> that was quite surreal. So I slightly wondered if it was... It's not that level <sighs> of extravagance. No, it was completely laid back. You know, people in jeans. 
So the odd hay bale around, I noticed yeah, on the video yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. really let you know that it's definitely outdoors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really good idea. Obviously, Glastonbury's a, a huge event. It wasn't genuinely trying to rival that, was it? No, I think I think George said that in one interview with Henry Mance from the FT, I and mean, then it just followed just him forever. Yeah, definitely stuck. But um, yeah, it was um, it was really fun, and obviously, I think at that moment as well. Um, people really needed that boost of confidence like yeah we can discuss new ideas and we can refresh conservatism um and you know let's let's start you know we can do it whilst the party's in in government ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Vital for any political movement to, to keep thinking new ideas and mm. not to get stuck in mm. rigid dogmas. Although perhaps some people around today would, on both sides, Hence would, why they're would, would, would disagree with that. Well, indeed, <laughs> how do you take the thrilling experience of coming up with new ideas? Because it, there is there is a side of politics that is a great creative adventure of thinking of new ideas and pushing yourself out of your ideological comfort zone and imagining how you could fund things in the future. And to some extent. That was what was very attractive about New Labour and that was what was very attractive about Cameron was that you got the sense that people were moving their parties beyond their comfort zones to an extent. That's not mm. always necessarily good in its for its own sake. But that mm -hmm. great adventure of politics, of thinking of new ideas, of trying to find solutions to the problems that the world faces is one element of it. You then have to distill that into a, a policy that is that would work, that is costed, that is explainable. And then you've got to convince people of that. Now, that's the... The thin end, the, the hard bit is where, where your job really is, is how do you convince people that your idea is right? Gosh, well, um, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it tends to be quite a long, a long process, to be honest. You know, first, I mean, I guess the practicalities around making people aware of what your ideas are, are, you, you know, you do a launch of a report, you make sure the media picks it up, you try and get on TV... And then you do an event, you invite MPs that you think are interested and ministers, and then you try and get a momentum going. Or, you know, if it's something really big, you try and get a letter and signatures and open letter or whatever. Um, but I guess in many ways, the most effective thing is you just got to have your finger on the pulse and know which departments are looking for new ideas and it's all about timing as well. 
So then you try and have a meeting with these people who, especially now with Brexit, by the way, are so all-consumed, most, most apartments, that there tends to be a bit more of a need or a want for new ideas. Oh, so actually, in a, in a bizarre way, Brexit's an opportunity because... People are just desperate to talk about something else. There's a else. lot of opportunities around Brexit. <laughs> I bet there are. I would love to know what they are. Our immigration uh, proposals, for starters, um, yeah, now that Brexit's happening, maybe they'll get implemented. <laughs> well, that's exciting. <laughs> you know, it, but it, that sounded sarcastic. I genuinely meant okay. it. But it is, because I've, I worked in public affairs for a while, working for a quango, defending low-income consumers. And, you know, you, you do try and start these campaigns. You meet with chairs of select committees, you meet with mm, ministers. And it, yeah. just, it takes so long. Actually, one of the things it reassured me about, and I'm not sure if you should, not sure if you share this view, but actually, you could set up as a lobbyist quite easily, in an ethical way, and quite easily get access to people. It's not that hard to convince MPs that are interested in a thing, mm. or even ministers whose area of responsibility is. It's not that hard to convince no. people to meet you, I don't think. No, I, I totally, I'm totally with you. And I haven't obviously worked... Um, in other countries, like, as senior as I do now, I guess. But my sense from Dutch, seeing Dutch politics, it's so different because, A, you know, this whole culture of of MPs in Britain, which I think is is brilliant, where you have constituents and you go and meet them and you listen to what their issues are. I mean, if you're a good MP, that's what you do. And in Holland, you know, they don't have constituencies. So I guess, you know, if you're responsible for an area, yeah, you'll you'll take meetings on something, of course you would. But they tend to only have, like, one issue that these BMPs focus on. Whereas in British Parliament, we, I mean, we expect so much from politicians. I mean, they have two jobs anyway, yeah. representing their constituents and staying up to date what's happening on the ground and showing their face and supporting local activities and, and organisations and what have you. And then we need to know about, you know, all the legislation that's being passed. And we expect them to know about everything, absolutely everything. And then some of them have a third job. They actually have to run a department as well. I think we really give our MPs, politicians quite a hard time. I mean, very often, obviously, recent months, obviously, it's come more and more to light. There's definitely wrongdoings. But a lot of them are good people and well-meaning and, and work bloody hard, and that's on all sides of the house. Oh, yeah, the vast majority of the ones I know are, are work very long hours mm. and are completely dedicated mm. to, to the job of being a Member of Parliament. Um, obviously, every party has their own way of doing things, even though you know MPs broadly have things in common. Uh, one of the things I'd be very interested that you, you've talked about in the past is, is the, the, the Tory problem of perception, and it's something that you talk about in that Big Tent Ideas uh, YouTube clip, which is which is available for everyone uh, to watch afterwards, including myself. <laughs> how do the how does the Tory Party change that that fundamental, deep rooted perception? Because even under Cameron, it didn't really manage it. That it just doesn't care as much about people as the Labour Party. Gosh, if only I knew. Well, that is. I <laughs> realise that's a big. Did question. I have the answer at the Big Ten? <laughs> I, I'm not, with, with, uh, I probably uh, didn't. Probably not. no. But then who has? I mean, no, I realise that's a big question. It is, it is It is. a huge question. I guess, obviously, if, yeah, as you allude to, if people knew the answer, they'd probably be implementing it now. Um, it's, I, I guess it's many, many layers. So you, 
Starting from, let's let's start from the bottom. So grassroots and members, right? If you look at the membership of a party, it tends to be quite old, relatively like that. I can't remember what the average old, average age is. It's not this rumour about us being spread recently if it's 72 or higher. That's, that's yeah. not true, but it is definitely high. Um, and there's not a lot of young people currently joining because A, they've got better things to spend their money on or B... Labour membership. Yeah, because it's only three quid, isn't it? <laughs> or what is it? I mean, I think Tory membership's 20 or £25. Pounds. Um, and or they don't agree with the current vision of the current leadership. Right, so... There's issue number one. <laughs> yep. How are you going to get these more people to, to join? Um, so that's where I mean that's that's definitely a big big part because these people get to decide who the leader is as well. Um, I think when it comes to perception, as I alluded to earlier, the parliamentary party of Conservatives is you know you take Brexit aside, um, most of them would agree on the major issues and um, I think they are very progressive and liberal conservative especially 2017 and 2015 and take and probably half of the 2010 and then you got some modern modernizing Tories and older generations as well um and then it's obviously it's leadership leadership is is obviously a huge huge issue um but I think when it it comes it's all about and this is what bright blue um, advocates is it's a you got to hold on to your reputation for being credible on the economy, and on top of that, talk about social liberal policies. Is there something, perhaps, and maybe this is generational, and maybe it's unfair that actually some Tories don't care whether you think they care or not. That there's a kind of stiff upper lip about it. That well, we just we will deliver the policies we deliver, and if you agree with them, fine. And if you don't, you, you're free to disagree. Is there is there a sort of communications issue with the Tory party that actually it doesn't want to be soft and gentle? Oh, that's the first time I've heard that. Do you know what I mean? Is there not no. a kind of? Is what do there you not? Mean? Well. Take, for instance, the problem Theresa May had, where people say, you know, she she seemed even in the in the wake of say Grenfell which I appreciate was very difficult for her, there's a sense that perhaps she's not outwardly that emotional anyway and that maybe that is a I mean, a that's problem. obviously a very unique situation. But I guess, I guess what maybe what you mean is they care more about doing the right thing rather than if people like it or not. Is, they, that, is that what you're getting at? Because I think they, there's, there's, they, there is an element of Yeah, are they less that. likely to... Like, I guess they may... I don't know. <laughs> There's, like, research been done into yeah. this. But perhaps they are more more likely to pursue a policy if they really believe that's going to benefit the economy or whatever aspect, even if they are concerned they just might not like it. But on things like... So, you're like, slightly less populist, I guess. But I, I don't know if that's true, because obviously a lot of the stuff in politics nowadays is... Is very much led by polls, which I think personally is probably a mistake. And I think you, in the long run, you get a lot more respect from voters if you do do what you think is best and stick to your guns. But on things like health and welfare, and you know, the, exactly the sort of things you're talking about, things that's in those traditional Labour heartland areas, it's not necessarily just 
Tory policy that makes people think perhaps that the Labour Party is the natural home for those values. But there is a sense that maybe Labour people are, are better at talking about the NHS or, or showing that they care about people in poverty. Or am I barking up the completely wrong tree there? I don't know. I just, I think that is, you know, reputations are very hard to get rid of. And they've clearly been in place for decades. So it is going to take a lot of a lot of hard work and time. Um, yeah, I I think yeah it it will it will change I think because you, obviously if you look now at the Conservative Party, look at the MPs, it's a very different picture than it was a couple of decades ago. Was it Harriet Harman who recently said, if you look at Tory benches, you know, the women used to be wearing tweed and stuff, and now they're actually cool. She didn't say cool, but now tweed is cool, isn't it? (laughs) By the look of the videos of the big tent ideas, plenty of people you knock around with who think it's cool. There might have been, yeah. Um, Anyway, and and she was saying there's also the new man on the Tory benches who actually care and campaign on on women equalities issues. Um, so it is definitely changing, but you know these take, these things take time, and I think a lot of you know you've got to remember a lot of the MPs that are currently on, also and candidates are on the candidates list were there still from the Cameron era. Mm. So yeah. What was Cameron like to deal with during the referendum campaign? Did you spend much time with him? I didn't know, but he was amazing. <laughs> Great guy. <laughs> Spoken like a true comms expert. <laughs> Were there any, I mean, everyone has the odd war story from a campaign. Were there any? What, war story or, like, funny well, story? Yeah, well, either. Any sort of mistakes well, or... Oh, mis- oh God, OK, so from a, com- from a comms perspective, yeah. I mean, this is out there, so you might know this already, but <laughs> it's got to be the most striking and tormenting thing for the entire press operation of Britain Stronger in Europe. So... We would send out press releases, obviously, and we would have a number of lists, like distribution lists. So print journalists, uh, broadcast journalists, you know, the farming journalists. Um, I mean, we even had, like, sports or sailings. I mean, we went pretty niche. We must have had, like, oh, I don't know, 40 different lists. of distrib- yeah. And this was all done through MailChimp. right. And um, <laughs> it's not funny, but you've got to laugh about it because otherwise you can't sleep. So, uh, so, so I mentioned the emergency budget earlier on, right? As a as a perhaps a turning point. Um, that was a very safely guarded plan yeah. and secret because George Osborne was going to present that with Alistair Darling. And that was that was pretty big, especially considering getting Labour and Tory people together senior level was an absolute nightmare because yeah. of Corbyn's involvement and Tony Blair's and Gordon Brown's relationship and all the rest of it. So that was a big, big deal. And um, the next morning, uh, George Osborne was doing a Today programme and they announced him and they say, and also on today's show will be Steve Baker. And... Um, in the papers, I think it had already landed that 60, nearly 60 Conservative MPs had vouched they would rebel against an emergency budget. 
So it completely undermined the story. Now, this press release would have gone out, I don't know, late, you know, and and it's under a no-approach um, embargo. So it had been, you know, it got to have been leaked. And um, it wasn't until after the referendum that... Rob Oxley told me and others and it was in the media that apparently it's quite easy to access MailChimp distribution lists and um, he managed to add a fake email address. I can't remember what it was. So he basically, he he got every single press release. Steve Baker did? No, Rob Oxley. Did I say Steve Baker? Rob oh, no, Oxley. no, no, sorry, I've got myself Rob confused. Oxley, who was the head of press for Vote Leave. Oh, and <laughs> yeah. Oh no! I know. Did you not know that? So the whole campaign. Well, I don't know when it started. I mean, it's it's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. I <laughs> I remember on a Sunday but it's being good for... like, you know, are we we definitely sending this press release to the whole list. Yeah, yeah. It's like, are you sure? Yeah. I was like, okay. I just I remember thinking that those lists seemed quite. You know, I didn't think people could hack into them, but I remember thinking like that's quite. Quite a lot of people on that list. Yeah. Um, and I know that Rob Oxley told me afterwards the way you know he was he operated completely differently. You know, he'd he'd only send out a press release himself, he had an Excel sheet um that he would add people to. I think he only sent it to journalists that he knew were friendly and um he could trust and all that stuff. So that that was that's not funny, but that is it's iconic. quite funny. Well, yeah. It's but these, I mean, this is what you do on a campaign, though, isn't it? You try and get as much of your opponent's literature as possible. Yeah, Sign I up don't, for every newsletter. I don't know. Yeah, we definitely got their newsletters, but obviously they're not going to put their embargoed press releases in a newsletter. No, but you'd, you'd perhaps pose as a niche magazine, wouldn't you? You might email I, them and you say... Know, maybe, maybe some people in the Remain campaign had thought of that, not that I'm aware of, and part of me thinks... You know, vote leave, they... they they played hard. Yeah. Really hard, because they knew they had to. Um, um, I don't know. I guess we were too nice. <laughs> well, that was a concern throughout the campaign, wasn't it? I mean, do you... Were you upset by the way Vote Leave behaved? Do you know people who work for them that you've struggled to be friends with since? Um, I'm not close friends with anyone who works worked on that campaign um not purposefully but i know a couple and i get on quite well with with them actually um but yeah it was definitely a struggle to 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 hear that <laughs> that's another thing rob oxley told me he was gleeing at the time this is quite recent after yeah. so that was you know just had to suck it up and be like yeah i lost um and so i think it was yeah sarah wollaston mp Switched sides. That's right, I remember. And I was on late duty that night. And I had no idea. This was a very safely guarded secret. We didn't know that was the media plan for the next day. You know, we didn't sell it in as a story or anything. Um, and it, it, I think it must have been an exclusive. And all of a sudden, you, know, you had Paul Staines on a couple of weeks ago. It was on Guido Fawkes. Yeah. And uh, the next day, I got put in a room... And like two very angry faces, and like, did you leak it? Did you leak it? I was like, oh my god, I'm like, no. 
how does one leak Chiquito forks at that point? I literally didn't know even how to do that. Still don't. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, and then uh, Rob Oxley told me, oh yeah, that's quite funny actually because then. Um, the Times rang us up and uh, they asked if we had a comment and then we told Kido. Oh, God. And I was like, oh, my God, that caused me so much misery. I feel like they thought, oh, can we trust her or not? You know. Um, yeah, it's like things like that. You just, uh, you know, it's just funny how they, how they go. Because that obviously hadn't been sent out as a press release. They're like, how on earth did anyone know? It must have been an inside thing. And then it just turns out to be the Times... Well, that's it. Themselves. It's usually Bernard Ingham's rule that it's usually cock-up rather than conspiracy yeah. that these things happen. Um, but you've got it. I mean, in a campaign, surely you, you you know, if you wanted to know what Vote Leave were going to put out about agriculture, you'd, you'd pretend think... that you ran some obscure farming group in Lincolnshire and you'd <laughs> set up an email address and you'd... I don't know. Maybe you, need get, you need to get Will Straw and you might be able to reveal things that I don't know. But, um, ugh, I'm trying... They were, I think we did, oh, well, one of, we, if we knew where the bus was going, the Vote Leave bus, yeah. that would be a big win. So that was definitely, <laughs> we would, like, try and get intel on that. And then if we did, we'd try and... Sabotage <laughs> it. Sabotage it. There's one where, oh, God, what was the outfit? It was like a monkey. There was, like, some weird outfit, but I think it was a monkey because it was Banana Gate. No, yes. Boris made this gaff about right. bananas so saying you couldn't buy more than two or three. Bunches of more, bunches <laughs> like, more than three, yeah. That day, you could not have had more bananas in one office. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone came into the office with bananas. And we were Instagramming it, tweeting bananas. We were making all the puns in the world you could yeah. come up with. Um, and then we sent was it either a banana costume or a monkey costume <laughs> to wherever, wherever the bus was. And it made it on TV. Oh, we were so happy. <laughs> Cheering, but that's all. I mean, um, that's all. That's all fair. That is, isn't it? That's that's part of the great fun. I of guess so. I don't know how you, I, British campaigns. I don't know how voters viewed that. We must have been like, you know, we got really excited about it. But I guess most people are like, why on earth is there a monkey on my TV screen? Well, you're going through a different experience now, aren't you, with voters? Because you're standing for office in mm. in Labour Kensington, <laughs> that bastion of socialism. <laughs> um, how are you finding it being a candidate? It's this year's local election, so yeah. in early May. How are you finding making the transition from office to the street? Uh, well, I've done quite a lot of street. <laughs> but as, but being the candidate, being the front woman? Uh, I mean, that is a total game changer. Yeah, it is very different. Um, so I, I was very much in doubt if I wanted to do it um, at first. And then I thought, you know, put your money where your mouth is. You want more liberal conservatives, you want more women... And to a certain degree, also, you want more younger voices getting involved and, you know, hopefully getting more people interested in doing the same thing. So why not? And um, where I live is, that is, you know, I grew up in Holland for a large chunk, but I was born in London and that's where I spent my first six years. And it is, um, it does generally feel like my, my home. So I thought, well, it is a pretty amazing thing to do. And it has proven to be really rewarding and actually quite fun. Really hard work. You know, my social life has definitely had a kicking. Um, but, it, yeah, it go, but as you say, like, going around knocking on doors and being the candidate yourself is obviously very different. But it is, it is exciting. And um, the idea, you know, it is a marginal, but, you know, if, if I... Because it's currently conservative, but as you say... Kensington is now 
Labour in Parliament. Yeah. Um, if I win, the idea of actually being able to help people that you speak to and look you in the eyes and say, I have an issue with this and that, that's really powerful. And what are you sensing on the doorstep in Kensington in terms of that, that incredible shift at the last election where it did go Labour? Is that Labour support still there? And if so, why? Um, it's hard to tell because obviously there was a large swing um, and the, I strongly suspect the large chunk of that is because of Brexit. Um, and, you know, people are still obviously not happy about it and it still comes up on the doorstep. But this time round, you know, are they still going to protest on Brexit, even though it's about how often their bins get collected and, you know... Dog mess and speed Dog mess and well, there's a lot more issues. But, yeah, <laughs> obviously councillors can't do anything about the situation with the, with the EU. So we don't know. Um, I it's been, it's been quite positive, actually. Uh, it has been... It has been quite positive. Um, and I think, you know... Um, Obviously, last general election, most people in Kensington were campaigning out in Ealing and Brent and Isleworth. Um, And now we're we're throwing everything at this. You know, we are determined to hold a council. So there's a lot more campaigning and activity going on. And, you know, people really, you know, people love it when you go to their doorstep. That always surprises me about British politics. And I've adjusted to it now. But... In Holland, nobody would come knocking on your door. And if they did, you'd think, like, well, it's none of your business. <laughs> Go away. And occasionally you get people like that. But on the whole, people really appreciate it. It makes such a difference yeah. to be able to say, you're the only person who's knocked on my door. It mm. makes. I mean, people I know that aren't political will say, the only person who's ever knocked on my door is, and it might be, depending on where they live, the Lib Dems, the Tories, mm. Labour or whoever, but it makes a profound effect on people. It does make it them does. feel cared for in, in yeah. a sort of bizarre yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, turnout is a problem, though, isn't it, in local elections? It, you're not standing in the Westminster election, you're not going to get 60-odd percent people mm. voting in Kensington, although I imagine it has a relatively healthy turnout compared to the rest of the country. Some of the logic sometimes on local elections, as long as you get your voters out, mm. you, you'll win. I mean, do you... Well, that's, I think that's, the, I mean, to a certain extent, yeah, I think that goes to, that's the golden rule for pretty much any election, yeah. but especially local, and I suspect both parties will be taking that approach. And Labour was very good at doing that in a general election. Um, and just generally, obviously, that's a skill they've, they've got. Um, but, um, yeah, you, you know, you've got to hope they, they come out. I guess the council elections, well, we'll see, but I suspect they might be, there might be a higher turnout now because it's in the media a lot, especially, obviously, Kensington and Chelsea. But difficult point in the cycle for the Tories. Yeah, I mean, the polls aren't looking good. I mean, we haven't, we haven't had polls published on Kensington and Chelsea. I think that's purely because... Pulse just doesn't have the data ready yet. But I think the Evening Standard has, you know, they published it. And, um, yeah, it's going to be tight. So you're standing for office at the council. I suppose once you've made that leap onto the ballot paper, would you consider standing for Parliament? So I always, always get that question, whether it's a Saturday night in the pub with your friends or 
any work meeting yeah. you're in. And I guess it makes sense for people to ask. I, the answer is I genuinely do not know. I wish, I kind of wish I had the balls to say, yeah, I really want to do that. But um, yeah, I'm so aware of the downsides of being an MP. Yes. Having worked for quite a few. Um, and it's so, such hard work. Um, and it's going to have such an impact on your private life. You really need to have your your private life sorted before you go in. I fundamentally, I think that's really true. Um, and considering I'm still single, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've still got a long time to wait for that to happen. But, it, you know, and the scrutiny and... Well, but when you say that, do you mean that you would... You wouldn't be comfortable standing unless you were well. Like, in a maybe, relationship. That's, maybe that's stupid, but I mean, it, it, when are you going to find the time to meet someone when you're voting till ten p.m., eleven p.m. every oh, night? Oh, I see. What you mean. It's more about your own, you know, life satisfaction. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Rather than a voter's judgment that if you're single, you're not... no, no, no. Yeah, I don't think they care. No. You know, you're obviously going to have more time to vote to them, but I just. You know, it, it is it is such a hard lifestyle. It's hard enough if you're happily married. It's going to cause a strain because obviously you're going to be away so much, you know, depending where your seat is. Um, that's kind of a view, yes. the informal view I hold. And then the scrutiny and, you know, God, I know all MPs get it, but especially female MPs, online mm. abuse. Um, I've actually really experienced some of it locally. You wouldn't believe... <laughs> Online or face to face? Online, it's really, it's really trivial. But um, and what sort of stuff is it? Oh, just like, um, it's like um, lies and it's spinning out. You know, I had a very friendly comp. I thought I'd be really nice because that's what I'm all about. I got knocked a, a Labour candidate and group knocks on my door, and I was like really friendly. I was like, oh, don't worry, you know, don't know. Just so you know, I am. I'm also a candidate and. Oh, isn't it great for snow's disappeared and all this sort of stuff? Yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, is is has momentum taken over here? Just a genuine, genuine question. Anyways, there's a story somewhere where it's like oh, I'm investigating and uh, trying to like get all this information and blah blah blah. Really weird. Um, but so you, and that's minor. But you know, you look at the abuse and death threats, and I mean, Joe Cox only mm. So 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 recently, I mean, there's so many downsides, and it does. It it it. Why I said it angers me that I can't just say yes is because I'm so aware of so many people being put off by it, but I am very worried that people won't putting be putting themselves forward. But isn't that heartbreaking um, that you're a successful, talented? Asset to, mm-hmm. to to the Tory party, but seriously, I'm going to listen back to and, this one. <laughs> and, and and you can't bring yourself to to to, to well, really I'm also, find it I'm yourself. Well, I'm also I'm also quite young, Being huh? How old? I'm. Uh, I established that I was born after the fall of a Berlin Wall. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> <laughs> so I'm 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 going to be 28. Okay, yeah, that's young. Yeah, but I am young. But then there are young MPs, there are young politicians. Yeah, well, you know. I, I'm not saying never, but I just um, it's it's um, I'm not sure. But you know, this this so far this experience of running for council has been a very positive one, and okay. I wasn't sure if I would experience it as such. I mean, it's just it's so. I mean, I understand 
No, there's a bizarre thing in British politics where no MP admits they want to be Prime Minister. Yeah, well, that's starting few, to change. Very few people admit they... James Cleverley is very open about it, uh, and other people are. <laughs> uh, and very few people ever admit they want to stand for Parliament. It's kind of... It's the done thing to say you don't want to do it. Yeah, well, I've got quite a lot of friends who have stood and who are open about it. So I am being honest, but I just... I'm not, I'm not ruling it out. Yeah. Part of me... Part of me thinks it's obviously it's an, without those downsides. You must have that drive to. It's so um, it's such an amazing job. You get to help people. You get to um, you can explore so many different policy areas and actually make a change. Uh, obviously, there's there are elements of a job that are hugely appealing. Um, it's just. You know, there's there's huge costs to it. It's just a shame that the costs are abuse. Yeah, it's appalling. It's that, it's absolutely that part appalling. of it. It's a real shame. That's what it is. But in a new section that you'll be the first person to try out on this podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. In a way, you will get to see what it's like to be prime minister. There's a new part of the show called <laughs> PPQs, political party questions, and this is something you can join in with um, wherever you listen as well. I will read out a question that was put to a politician in the last week and you have to say, not what you would say, but what that politician yeah. should have said. So you can join in with this by emailing your answers to politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. So we're calling it PPQs, which is like PMQs. <laughs> it's, but better. It, this is the thing, if you're, not, if you're explaining, <laughs> you're losing, right? So this is, it's time for PPQs. So this question was put by Julie Etchingham to Theresa May. If you could have your perfect get-together with your girlfriends, what would be your perfect night with them and how would you let your hair down? Now, Theresa May basically dodged the question. Um, mm. What do you think Theresa May should have said? So I remember watching that and thinking, oh, come on, come on, give us the right answer because obviously the whole running free weed thing is, was, yeah. was bad. <laughs> um, but actually, I mean, I was... I'll, I'll give you an answer. I promise yeah. I will give you an answer. But I was... In hindsight, I did, I did then think, actually, I think she did the right thing because she was talking about such an, a heavy and important topic about preventing sexual violence. Yes. Right, that was a whole... That was a whole... Um, point of the interview. ...agenda and point of the interview and what the entire government were, was talking about that day. And I thought that was really powerful and, you know, kudos to them for doing that on International Women's Day. So if she would have, let's be honest, if she would have given an answer other than that she did, that would have completely taken over all the headlines from that and been spun in some weird way, right? So taking but it out of that context. Had she Taking it out of a context, I would have enjoyed it if she would have said, you know, face to the camera, she said, Harriet Harman, why don't you come battle it out and I'll show you why I'm a sister. <laughs> <laughs> A very combative answer. I mean, I, I actually thought it was a really bad question to ask. Not because I thought it was... I didn't think it was trying to get genuine insight. Now, I might be no, wrong. No, I think it was It was very opportunistic to try and get, you know, the, the running through the wheat sort of type. But Theresa May doesn't story. strike me as the sort of person who has a night in with her girlfriends or would even think about it like that. She strikes me as someone who perhaps has dinner parties exactly, with yeah. other friends, but I'd, she doesn't strike me as someone who has the girls around. And, well, she might do. The framing of it, I thought, was a bit peculiar. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I says, uh, I don't know her, but I would, I, you know, if I had to guess what, but you know, if if it was 
someone else who's close to her asking that question and she could be honest, she'd probably say, um, yeah, I'd have some friends around for supper. And, cook a uh, nice meal. Cook bottle a nice of red. meal, have a bottle of red. Yeah, like most, like most <laughs> normal people. Or is, is the sad truth that perhaps she doesn't and she's like, I'm, I'm too busy being Prime Minister to do well, it. Well, she doesn't have the time have to do that. Wouldn't that have been the best answer? I don't get to do stuff like that because I've got the most important job in the country. I thought she did say that, but did she not? She just said... Oh, maybe she did, actually. I think maybe she she's already given the perfect that. answer. I, yeah, I've got to say, I thought she did quite well there. And at first I thought, ooh, you know, come on. But no, I think she did quite well, actually. So what should Theresa May have said in answer to the question, if you could have your perfect get-together with your girlfriends, what would be your perfect night with them and how would you let your hair down? Email yours to politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Laura, the time has flown by. It has. And we've overrun. Uh-oh. Uh, so that's bad. I feel, uh, apologies for that. But it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real, real honour. Cheers. Well, there you go, Laura Rand. It's not hard to see why. You can absolutely see her being a, 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 not just a Member of Parliament, but a Cabinet Minister, perhaps a future Prime Minister. It feels, you know, there is a tone to the times in which we live, which whatever ideology you have, or indeed if you, you have none and just simply enjoy listening to politicians and political people being interviewed, there was a tone in the era that we, that we live in that I think is particularly toxic, and, and I don't think any one side is any worse at it than the other. So it's not a point-scoring exercise. I'm not trying to make a point about anyone. But Laura is such a refreshing antidote to some of the uglier elements of politics uh, in terms of the tone, in terms of the way we talk about each other, the way we think about people that we disagree with, that I think even at the moment, perhaps, um, we haven't sorted it all out. But I, I genuinely think that as the years tick by in these in these these coming years, more people will come round to that, um, to that school of thought. Not necessarily ideologically, but just in the way that we treat each other and the way that politics is done. I think there are enough of us that realise it has to change. I can't help but think the public don't want politics to be toxic and divisive and angry. Of course there are things to get angry about, but it's so refreshing to talk to someone who, obviously, you know, my background is in the Labour tradition, but to, to talk to someone who you might disagree with on things, but just enjoy having a political conversation with someone. Find someone that you disagree with interesting and agree with them on, on lots of things as well. It was, uh, it was a brilliant discussion. And obviously we get people on this podcast at various different stages of their career. I get the real sense with Laura that even though she's already achieved big things and has worked on big projects, there's so much more left that she will achieve. So certainly not only already a big figure in British politics, but someone who I'm sure uh, will, will absolutely grow in, in stature and um, will become... Um, a household name. Let's see how she gets on in communist Kensington first. You can follow Laura on Twitter at Laura Round. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Ford. And don't forget to join in with a brand new game, PPQs, which is obviously a sort of play on letters of PMQs. Um, email me, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And what should Theresa May have said to this question? If you could have your perfect get-together with your girlfriends, what would be your perfect night with them and how would you let your hair down? What should the Prime Minister have said to that question? As I said before, I'm on tour. I'm in Glasgow on Sunday the 25th of March, Edinburgh on Tuesday the 27th of March, Bristol on the 29th of March and London Soho Theatre from the 3rd to the 7th of April and there are other dates as well. If you want me to stop reading out these tour dates at the beginning and end of every podcast... Buy tickets. It's the only way to shut me up. 
So for nothing else than to give your ears a rest, go to mattford.com slash live um, to, uh, to buy your tickets. I'll be back next week with another wonderful guest, but please do subscribe, review and share. And uh, huge thanks to Laura Rand. I'll see you next week. Oh, and I almost always forget to say this. This podcast was produced by... Uh, she's laughing at me now. I, I, it's because five years of, of not having a producer, you see. I'm, I'm spoiled now. This podcast was produced by Daisy Knight. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.